0: Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the writer's block. Hi, I'm Claire Light, and I'm going to be reading the short story, Pinball Effect, from my collection Slightly Behind and to the Left, which was published by Aqueduct Press. The story takes place on an alien planet, so I will pronounce all the words in the alien language with a hiss, like this, Sss. Pinball Effect. Some things are best defined in opposition. Observe the time we stopped at a planet with no gravity. A black and gold disk popping out of space would have been just like Earth, but because of the lack of gravity, the atmosphere kept flying up into space in globules. Approaching the planet from space, we had to dodge floating debris, miniature oceans, and the white-suited figures of the air officers grabbing at escaping globs of air and putting them in their pockets. We were to stop for repairs and maintenance for five revolutions of the planet. Since they had finished experimenting on me a year ago, My abductors had developed an indulgent affection toward me, as towards a pet, and promised to take me home when next we were close to earth. Until then, I could amuse myself as I wished, as long as I got in no one's way. Cradled naked in our transparent ship, every molecule of my flesh, my limbs, my genitals, was enclosed and encased in the gel, touched and caressed at all times. I was a young man, my nerves not yet fully formed— my courage still in question. On the ship, I was under constant, gentle stimulation, able to see and feel everything but touch nothing. The happenstances of space arrayed before me like a tray of sharp jewels I couldn't escape. But it was the velvet against which those jewels were displayed that frightened and arrested me. I longed for some fruit, a bath, or a hug. I longed to be smothered. The atmosphere of was friendly to my sort of species, my abductors told me. I could go down if I wanted. Although I feared what new form of life I might find there, ss, was my chance to get on solid-ish ground for a brief time. My caretaker, Ufluuk let me go down with a telepathic admonishment not to float off into space, for no one would know, and no one had any time to come get me in any case. I ignored him. Kind as he was— my hand passed through him as I waved goodbye, and I still didn't know if he really existed. Sometime in the past of the planets, there must have been extreme gravity, for nothing but the direst weight could have crushed their mantle into solid diamond. The planet was small, and had one large continent only, which circled the planet's diamond flesh like a wedding band. The Skians had so configured the continents to keep them from floating away, taking each piece of continent and bolting it to the next with a metal bracket so large you could see it from space, until it formed a self-controlling ring around the planet's black diamond mantle. The entire continent was one continuous tropical city of constantly shifting configuration. But it was a real city, tangible, with traffic, contrariness, and flow. Only one building stood out, the spike of an enormous, sparkling blue tower. I aimed at it and swam down. Once on the planet's surface, I discovered another delightful thing. The people were flesh and blood like me. They weren't groups of particles or clouds of gases. They weren't dispersing ide-gel like Oofluok and my abductors. They were solids, limbed solids made for dark thoughts and beauty. I reached street level and grabbed the nearest person, a small, chartreuse-scaled creature, a child it must have been, It released a puff of lemon gasoline scent. Its surface was like taut silk, but with a fine texture from the scales. And it was warm. The warmth pulsed just beneath the surface, with a polyrhythm. With a fervor that I never knew I had, I began to bump into people on purpose, just for that momentary spot of warmth on my skin, for the corrupt motives they might be hiding beneath. But bumping things on was a perilous business, You had to be careful not to bump too hard, because the thing bumped would bump something else. That thing would ricochet off yet another, and then you had three things moving. Pretty soon, you'd started a chain reaction that had everyone and everything in the area zigzagging like a pinball game. The people puffing profane clouds of surprised scent, the buildings zooming around like released schoolchildren. Only the black-suited inertiates could stop the pinball effect. They'd assess the situation, seeing instantly the whole, then select one or two buildings or vehicles or even trees and throw them up into space where they flew eternally away. Immediately, whatever zigging objects there were would somehow crash into zagging objects with equal density and be stopped dead in their tracks. Buildings kissing hills, trees embracing sss, paving stones nose-deep in sss, like dogs. Inertia would take over suddenly, and things would return to normal, but not before someone's house or family's, or even an irreplaceable architectural treasure was lost. Only the twinkling blue stone tower I used as a landmark was immune to throwing. Sometimes the pinball effect would spread so far and so energetically and so fast that by the time the black-suited inertiates came, there was nothing for it but to throw people. Thus it was irresponsible, but in my eagerness to be touched, I flew through the streets, arms outstretched, slapping and grabbing and bumping. You could mark my progress through the city of S simply by following the surprised puffs of scent and the swath of spinning, disarrayed bodies I left behind me. And it was only the agility of the Ssians that averted disaster. Then, one day on a boulevard, with floating benches and soft lampposts, I bumped someone, and I smelled sweet bean paste. It was a warm, cloying scent, the exact smell of the dessert my mother had been making the day I was abducted. I turned my head quickly to see a bright pink scaled body ricocheting slowly away from me, and I reached out to her at exactly the same moment she reached out to me. As we grabbed each other, both stopped suddenly, arrested into stillness by a perfect opposition. It was shocking. We hovered there in that space, just above the trembling paving stones, stopped on the axis of our linked arms, weightless. The Skihan's head rotated slowly to offer a view of me to each in the single row of lit eyes encircling her head like an elevator console. A cloud of perfume like mango ink puffed into the air. Her thick grassland of antennae waved toward me, The bottom half of her head gripped in an exquisite series of wrinkles. A mouth opened to the sky on the crown of her forehead, and in a velveteen buzz she said, "'Ssss.' "'Hello,' I said. Heat flowed up my arms from where they were grasped. (whispers) ( Ingredientes) "'Ssss,' she said, puffing something akin to sticky rice and ginger. The voice raised hairs on my arms, as if she were stroking my skin. She extended a leg toward the ground then pushed off, propelling herself backward and tugging at my arm. Ssss, she said. Ssss, I said back to her. Then I pointed at myself and said, Kenji. She said, Ssss, again. Then she tugged at me again, and I let her pull me along. She would tug, I would follow. She would stop, I'd bump into her, and we'd both be arrested. A perfect match. Holding her paw, I intuited, beneath her skin... The presence of black ice, the balance of a corruptible soul clothed with dizzyingly warm flesh. For an entire afternoon, drawn about by her, I wanted nothing, yet felt a desire sharper than the edges of the flagstones lining our path and cutting my cheeks as we passed them. When the sun sank beneath the horizon, I released for a moment and she floated away. I tried to follow, but she moved away too quickly. "'I cried out, "Sss." "'Immediately I felt a paw on my arm. "'I turned, and behind me stood a black-suited inertiate. "'His upper paw grasped my shoulder with its two thick fingers. "'His eyes, covered by a gold-tinted goggle that encircled his head, "'shone orange lights upon my face. "'We stared at one another until I felt a tension release. "'I returned to my ship. "'Kay!' said Uflwuk into my mind that night. "'I looked around for him but didn't see him immediately.' Where are you? I asked aloud. Uflwuk appeared partially before me. I heard you had a spot of trouble today. He disappeared again. Really, what kind of trouble? I asked, truly anxious to know. Uflwuk became vague, as was his habit, when he couldn't, or didn't want to, answer a question. Becoming vague for him meant that the concept of him in my mind became vague, and I became unsure if he actually existed or not. I didn't really sleep while I was with my abductors. Their ship had been programmed to draw the effluvium of my subconscious entirely away from my mind, neaten it up, then deliver it back in a single brief burst every 3.72 hours. The bursts were both energizing and refreshing, and I never felt tired. But there was no proper escape either. Tonight, however, instead of considering the problem of Ufluok, I dreamed of the solution of s- On each succeeding day, I arrowed down toward my scintillating blue tower landmark to start the search for S again. These creatures were as confusing as they were lush and beautiful. She would have changed color when I found her again, and size. But I knew her by the fact that her perfect density stopped me dead. S wrinkled her face when she felt me grasp her arms and say her name. Maddeningly, she would float off whenever I let her go. That week turned magically into two weeks, as the fastidious engineers of S discovered more and more details to toy with on the ship. And every day I met S on a boulevard near the Blue Tower. I would see her from afar, but she would not appear to see me until I was close by and called out S softly. Then she would turn and wrinkle her face, and I would take two of her wrists in my hands. Every day S changed her color for me one day being a dull bronze, the next a cheery purple, and so forth through the possibilities. Finally, my desire grew intolerable. I wanted to be alone with S. One day, rather than let her draw me along, I pulled at her until we came to the base of my glittering blue tower. I had never before been inside. We floated up through the shaft of the tower to the viewing platform at the top. The city trembled around us like jumping beans. My hand trembled around her wrist. Above, we could see the white specks of air officers climbing up or down the fading atmosphere. Below, we saw the black pox of inertiates patrolling or controlling the disturbances. Occasionally, a larger building would leap up or lie down or spin like a top with the colored specks of skins tossed in strewing patterns away from it. I turned to S and stroked her scales. Her surface withdrew a bit, but then she stretched all three of her delicious arms outward with rubbery liquidity. She touched the smooth burnt orange scales underneath one arm with the opposite paw, and a large swath of her scaled skin slid back like a door, exposing what looked like ribs or long blue piano keys. She puffed a strange scent that I didn't recognize, and suddenly, without will, I thrust my hand into her ribs and strummed them. They were not hard to the touch like bone, but rather soft, with a sort of tense give, like the surface of gelatin. They quivered with the movement of my hand, revealing the blackness of what must have been her heart behind them, and then were still again. As I touched her, her skin released a bouquet of scents I had never smelled from her before, a more intense and daring combination of scents than I had ever imagined she could create. I was startled— and a little dismayed, but steadied myself, reached out my hand, and struck her keys another long, lingering stroke. Her spray this time was overwhelming. I lost my mind in an instant, and I leapt toward her. I seized from one of her three sides, pressing every available inch of my benumbed and nerve-wracked body to every available inch of her scales. Then, before I could react... All the scales in her body hardened and stood up straight into needles so fine that all they could do was puncture. They sank into my skin wherever my skin touched s, my face, my arms, my groin, my thighs, my lips, my eyeballs, without sound or sensation. I froze, awaiting a pain or pleasure that never came. With a quiet hiss, the needles then released her best perfume into my skin a combination of every joyful, pleased, and disturbing scent in her palate. I was infused. All of this took only a second or two before the needles were withdrawn and turned back into silken scales, lying flat all over her body. The door to her key cage slid silkenly shut. My body was dotted with spots of perfumed blood, which coagulated instantly. As I returned to my ship that night, leaking perfume, Minuscule scabs fell off and floated away from me in a pleasure-scented dust. We descended the diamond-flecked tower in a euphoric haze, gently awkward in the days of aftermath, and were met at the bottom by an honor guard of black-suited inertiates. Two took me in hand and brought me firmly back up to my ship, as if they knew that anything more that day would unhinge me. Two took S in hand and led her away as well. As their gloved paws touched me, I shuddered at the darkness, but also at the satisfaction. The white-suited air officers we passed on the way back up to the ship, who never seemed to notice our presence, balanced away my uneasiness. I had very sweet and frequent dream bursts. That night, Ufluk did not bother to announce his presence. He simply thought into my head, "'You appear to be unaware that the skins do not have sexes.' "'What?' don't have sexes or don't have sex i was understandably superior k we are communicating in concepts not words i spent the night hanging over watching the ring of continents wobble around their black finger at the beginning of the third week i met today a fishy silver with black flecks singing a scent song to a group of neon-colored children When she finished her song, I got her attention by grasping her arms and twirling her around. Sss, she said. Sss, a nearby child said, as if in blessing. I could not say so in front of children, but I wanted to dot myself with permanent micro-scars over my chest and cheeks and the insides of my arms. I thought of nothing but taking sss again and again everywhere we went, in public and during any tiny moment of privacy afforded to us. "'tossing walls and jurisdictions out of my way "'and hearing her voice call out her own name again and again. "'I said nothing but drew her along behind me, "'my weight doubling as she hung back "'and disappearing as she neared me. "'I looked for a private place "'and saw that we had neared a crevasse in the continent. "'Through the crack, the cold blackness "'of the planet's diamond mantle winked at me. "'Naturally, over time, "'parts of the tectonic plates had worn away.' and when these holes passed under us, we could see the diamond underneath. I hadn't seen it up close before. I thought this could be a good and secret place, and drew her to the crack. She began to struggle, teasingly, against my hand's lock on her arm. I looked down. Diamond, backed by darkness, is darker than you can imagine a darkness to be. The facets do not stop or turn back your gaze. "'No, your gaze goes down and down and down. "'My eyes were drawn down and my hand unlocked, all unknowing. "'I must have released S's arm. "'I tore my eyes away from the diamond before s' could disappear, "'but she had not yet floated away. "'Her eyes rotated levelly before me, "'and all three paws reached out and pushed me into the crevasse. "'I laughed as I fell, thinking this a joke.' The impact of landing on my feet jarred my knees, a distantly familiar unpleasantness. My feet, soft and uncalloused from years of bearing no weight, smarted and swelled. I felt overpoweringly weak. Before I could call out to her, my eyes were yanked down once more. What was this darkness so glazed and perfect it was like a tear in the world? Its lack was like a call to me. It suddenly seemed as if the planet's diamond meat could not be contained by its clothing of continents. The planet was opening a window to me, a window into its heart. I crouched down to look into the diamond. The surface was all facets, no curves. I followed the layers and layers of geometric faces as they faded down into the black. As each layer got fainter, I thought I could make out the next, and then the next and then the one after that, but I was mistaken. As I looked, I was only seeing blacker and blacker nothingness, each layer less of something than the last. For a century, I followed the blackness down. Captured, far from home, I thought I could just glimpse the shape of something essential in the depth. I nearly reached it again and again. Finally, called back by a catastrophic hunger, I came to myself. I was so thirsty I could no longer feel my tongue, The depths were gone, and I was staring at the diamond surface, only a millimeter away from my eyeballs. I tried to move my head, but could not. I was spread-eagled, face down, actually being pulled deeper into the diamond, every molecule of my body straining down into the black, as if called by a divine magnet. As I lay, terrified and observing, my spine fell between my lungs, my lungs pressed against my front ribs. My ribs pressed my chest, my nipples elongated forward, the cartilage of my nose softened as the tissue inside my skull surged forward to meet it. Moments before my vocal cords began to disintegrate, I recognized it as gravity. I could have lain there a few seconds. It could have been days. I thought at first it was who rescued me. My body was lifted up, and my tortured spirit lifted too. But then I was turned over, and I saw that I was held by a consortium of black-suited inertiates. At the lip of the crevasse above us, my failing eyes glimpsed a flash of fish-silver scales. She must have brought them, I thought. But as the inertiates floated me out of the crevasse, she would not level her eyes at me, and she disappeared into the chaotic distance, her arms grasped by black-suited arms her body obscured by black-suited bodies. While they carried me to my ship, I dissolved into the masslessness of pain. Every nerve in my body had been crushed, every bone had nearly liquefied, and every muscle had been separated out into fibers. My brain was near jelly, and it was a miracle I could think at all. But the worst part was... Had I misunderstood the blackness behind her blue ribs? Was it not the corruption of love? "'Did love to her equal cruelty rather than merely suggest it? "'Had I failed in some way, or worse, had I succeeded with her? "'She was more alien to me then than if I had never known she existed, "'and why hadn't she come to see me yet?' "'Ufluk passed a part of his body into mine and left it there, "'his now substantial tissue supporting my collapsed lungs "'and holding my crushed ribs in place while they healed. "'Over the next week he fed me parts of his body frequently.' every time it made me feel less like torn paper and more like neatly sliced grapefruit. But I wasn't grateful. I tried to leave the ship, minute by minute for a different purpose, leaving to find and hold her, or to scream obscenities at her, or to weep at her feet. But Uflwuk touched me whenever I moved to rise, and my will went away. Humans, he thought to me, or to himself, after a week had gone by. Humans what? You cannot help it, he thought. Was that a question? Kay, he thought. It is almost time for us to go. Be back at the ship in two hours. My name is Kenji, goddammit. If we're talking in concepts, can't you stop mispronouncing it? He withdrew the part of him that had dampened my will, and I shot down to the surface of s. My confusion resolved itself, as I felt Ufluk's immaterial finger withdraw from my will. No matter what her culpability or cruelty, no matter that S wasn't human, she was close enough. I had to have her with me on this adventure, or I would disappear. But where was she? I looked, but didn't know if I saw the satin scales of my S. Had I ever seen them? Almost certainly she had changed color and texture again. Perhaps she was even now next to me, pretending not to know me in her cruelty. I began grabbing each skein I passed and spinning around to see if the skeins' density stopped our spin. None of the ones I grabbed was she. None of them stopped our spin, but just revolved around and around and around, puffing silly scents like tungsten or rosé, until I released them. I must have grabbed at least a dozen— before I realized that I could not spin around the entire population of the city. Or could I? Darkness passed beneath my feet. The next skin who came near me, I shoved away hard, and he spun off lightly like a dried petal. Not she then. I shoved another one, so dense that I was the one who shot away from him. Also not she. I watched the bodies they rammed into. Not she, not she. I shoved towards my bright blue tower, spinning each body I passed. Each person threw limbs out, windmilling arms trying to stop their flights. I didn't look, didn't care that the buildings, the trees, and the paving stones were moving. Then I saw her, not so far away in the distance. It had to be her. I knew her, finally, in my soul I knew her. Nobody else could have that feel. This must have been why she crushed me, so I could find her. I had passed some sort of test. I made a line in her direction, but then a body slammed into me, pushing me obliquely away. I swam furiously and saw that she was closer, but then a poorly designed street lamp took her by surprise. The air was filled with sprays of rust, liver, and tomato. I called, Ssss, and saw her head jerk around. Her face wrinkled, and then we were slammed again, she by a quadricycle, I by a bowling cube, in neatly opposite directions. She spun and spun, and I swam and swam, and every time we came within earshot, we were pinballed away. I could not reach her. A steady paw grabbed me from behind and stopped my motion. I looked around at the black-encased arm of an inertiate, as another one nearby calmly and easily stilled flight. It held her grasped in its paw, as the two experts considered. I shook myself free and walked towards her. I was barely aware that the entire landscape was careening around us as I moved towards in the pinball's eye. Clods of dirt exploded around her head like fireworks as the Inertiate's paw held her shoulder firmly. Her eyes spun at me. I reached one hand out and just touched her scales. With the other hand I reached out to brace myself against the nearest solid thing. It was the tower. I pressed into it. I said to her. "'The tower moved. "'She wrinkled her face. "'The tower tipped. "'The inertiates, jerked out of repose, "'signaled each other. "'One grabbed me again and held me against the ground. "'The one holding her seized her with all three arms. "'He threw her up at the sky in a slightly angled trajectory "'that missed every sailing sedan chair "'and clod of pedals still in motion. "'Her limbs went out in a wheel.' but she did not slow down. She flew up like a falling star resurrected. The world of objects slowed down below as she soared. The tower swung harmlessly like a bat striking out, and then settled. Sss! I screamed. Sss! the inertiate holding me said, his voice as dark as anything I'd ever seen. I watched her body spinning away, moving more freely than she had ever moved before. She rose, growing smaller and ever more graceful, as she left the shreds of friction behind and flew away unobstructed. It seemed in that moment that she was a being made not for the confines of a world mourning its loss of gravity, but for the void. The black-suited paw held me down. Around me, bodies and benches were bumping into perfect balance, equaling each other, bringing each other back into inertia. All around me, the world was ceasing. When all was again still, the inertiate carried me back to the ship and made it clear that I was no longer welcome on the planet. I gazed out the window for weeks afterward, hoping that we would at least encounter her body floating through space, that I might at least hold her cold, dead scales one more time. Of course, I never saw her again. I also never saw the terrifying jewels and blackness of space again. Never saw anything in space again but clarity and structures. But for me, the night sky has always held the possibility of frozen life and eternally preserved beauty. Every gravitied world I've stood on has possessed the possibility of drawing to it her remains. And some day I could be standing here or somewhere, and her body could fall into my arms from the sky, as if she were made for a world that holds its own. She would be dirty, lumpen, and magicless. And I'm sure I'd find that we weigh exactly the same. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. <laughs>